0: Welcome to the AAP Board Review Podcast, which is a podcast reviewing high-yield, board-relevant topics in the field of physiatry. I'm Dr. Hannah Farmer, a PM&R resident at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri.
1: And I'm Dr. Benjamin Gill, also a PM&R resident at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri.
0: We want this podcast to be a high-yield, audible study aid. In today's episode, our focus will be on pathologies of the lower limb.
1: Credit goes to future physiatrist Annie Wingard for her excellent assistance writing this episode. Special thanks to Dr. Carl Jockey and Dr. Benjamin Washburn from the University of Missouri for reviewing the episode. Disclaimer, the AAP Board Review Series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the hosts and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity.
0: All right. Let's jump in with a case. A 21-year-old female collegiate long-distance runner presents with right anterior shin pain. The pain started during preseason training a few months ago. It typically onsets early in her runs, decreases with further activity, and then recurs the next morning. It tends to improve with rest and ice. She has been averaging about 40 miles of running per week with mixed terrain. She does note some irregularity in her menstrual cycles, but no recent weight loss. Her BMI is 22. Her typical pain of diffuse aching pain across the anterior tibia is reproduced with palpation throughout the shin. When asked to run for several minutes, she reports initial pain that gradually abates, but no numbness or weakness. What is our differential?
1: Well, Hannah, without acute trauma, my differential for anterior leg pain generally focuses on muscle strains or tendinopathies in the anterior and lateral lower leg compartments, medial tibial stress syndrome, chronic compartment syndrome, and stress fractures of the medial tibia or anterior tibial cortex. Less likely pathologies include superficial or deep fibular neuropathies, referred pain, such as from the spine or knee, or vascular pathologies. Given this patient's chronicity, location, and description of improvement with warm-up, I am most suspicious for medial tibial stress syndrome, often referred to as shin splints.
0: What are some of the risk factors associated with medial tibial stress syndrome?
1: This condition is most common in active individuals, such as military personnel or athletes. The pathophysiology is thought to be due to eccentric contraction of the medial soleus as it resists pronation. Risk factors that increase stress and traction on the posterior medial aspect of the tibia include excessive pronation, or flat feet, decreased bone mineralization, muscle dysfunction, decreased flexibility, and inappropriate shoe design. Literature has also reported greater incidence with females, higher BMI, greater internal and external hip rotation, and increased calf girth.
0: This is certainly a frustrating condition. Should we obtain imaging?
1: Well, radiographs will typically be negative, although some periosteal reaction or localized swelling is rarely seen. A bone scan could be obtained, which would show patchy, diffuse areas of increased tibial uptake in medial tibial stress syndrome compared to the focal uptake with stress fracture. Overall, MRI is considered the most sensitive to differentiate MTSS versus Frank stress fracture with cortical defect. MRI in medial tibial stress syndrome would show broad areas of edema and thickening of the posterior medial, medial periosteum or multiple small osseous stress injuries. Stress fracture would appear with periosteal edema and may show a unicortical or bicortical radiolucent line. The Frederickson grading system was originally created to rate medial tibial stress injuries on MRI.
0: You mentioned stress fracture. Why is this diagnosis lower on your differential?
1: Tibial stress fracture should certainly be considered. This will typically have a focal tenderness on palpation. The pain would also be aggravated by exercise, but may occur with rest, ambulation, or even nocturnally. Risks would be increased with energy deficient states, also now known as RED-S, or relative energy deficiency in sport, or simply athlete triad. It's great that we noted that this patient's BMI and pattern of menstrual cycle in our history.
0: All right, so not a diagnosis we want to miss, but could be contrasted with medial tibial stress syndrome clinically and with imaging. I want to add that aside from the history and exam aspects we already discussed, having the patient attempt single leg hops for 10 reps is also commonly used to rule out stress fracture. Great point. Is there a particular approach we could use to treating MTSS?
1: We want to focus on symptomatic relief and modification of risk factors. Symptom treatment would focus on rest, ice, and maybe topical or oral analgesics. The patient is an active individual who could benefit from cross-training activities that do not exacerbate her symptoms, such as cycling or swimming. We also want to focus on her foot alignment, gait mechanics, and shoes.
0: Sounds perfect for a physiatrist.
1: <laughs> you bet. Cushioned orthotics may help with shock absorption, or a semi-rigid medial arch support could support pronated feet. Some physicians also initially use splints, similarly to stress fractures. Physical modalities will focus on reducing soft tissue and tendon tightness. Therapy could include motor strengthening, flexibility work, such as with proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. Going back to our mention of RED-S, or energy deficiency conditions in athletes, we would want to discuss nutritional intervention and training alterations if the patient was losing weight or experiencing amenorrhea. Increasing estrogen should help stabilize her bones and decrease future stress fracture risk.
0: I've heard about chronic exertional compartment syndrome in the anterior leg. How would this be different?
1: Great question, Dr. Farmer. Chronic exertional compartment syndrome would also be an aching tightness that increases with exertion. The increased pressure, such as in the anterior leg compartment, could lead to muscle weakness or nerve pathology, such as paresthesia or foot drop, associated with the deep perineal nerve.
0: This condition resolves quickly with rest. How would we diagnose it in the clinic?
1: We could have the patient perform the activities that typically lead to the pain, such as running or dancing. Definitive diagnosis involves intracompartmental pressure measurements compared before and after exertion. Pressures greater than 25 millimeters of mercury post-exercise or an increase greater than 10 millimeters of mercury compared with to resting baseline are considered diagnostic.
0: What is the cause of this pathology?
1: Well, the mechanism of chronic exertional compartment syndrome is not totally understood, but theories focus on thick compartment fascial layers that are not flexible to increase blood flow that occurs with exercise. This has been seen on biopsies of the fascial-periosteal interface that also show evidence of remodeling. Muscle biopsies have also shown decreased capillary densities, although this was performed in symptomatic patients at the time of compartment fascial release, and therefore it is unclear if it is a contributor or secondary to the syndrome. Regardless, increased pressure in the compartment likely causes painful transient or permanent ischemic damage to the muscles and nerves.
0: How can we treat it?
1: Treatment starts with conservative measures of reduced exercise and deep tissue massage. You may decrease mileage in runners or prescribe running on low-impact surfaces. Orthotics to rest the compartment may be needed. Dry needling or prolotherapy may be considered. If symptoms persist, next steps are surgical fasciotomy or fasciectomy. Once the patient's symptoms have resolved, they can slowly increase their exercise length or intensity by 10% every week. Let's shift gears. What do you remember about acute compartment syndrome?
0: Great question. Acute compartment syndrome is typically associated with trauma. Correct. Although not perfect, I remember the classically described warning signs with the five P's, pain, pulses, pallor, paresthesia, and paralysis. Fantastic.
1: These symptoms should immediately raise concern for infarction within the involved fascial compartment. Potential constriction from casts, splints, or dressings should be released immediately. The patient may require fasciotomy for pressure release. If missed, this condition can cause permanent contractures, nerve damage, or even lead to limb loss. Well, Dr. Farmer, you know what time it is. This is our lightning round. All
0: right, I'm ready.
1: Let's talk about the general anatomy of the leg. The lower leg has four compartments, anterior, lateral, superficial posterior, and deep posterior. What muscles are found in the anterior compartment of the leg?
0: Tibialis anterior, extensor hallucis longus, extensor digitorum longus, and fibularis tertius. They are all innervated by the deep fibular nerve.
1: Fantastic. Now to hit you with some more anatomy, what about the deep posterior leg compartment?
0: That would be tibialis posterior, flexor digitorum longus, flexor hallucis longus, which are innervated by the tibial nerve. These structures also all pass through the tarsal tunnel and are involved in tarsal tunnel syndrome.
1: Correct again. What muscle is not distal to the fibular head, yet innervated by the fibular nerve?
0: The short head of the biceps femoris. That is important to remember during electrodiagnostic testing.
1: Great point. What nerve could be involved with persistent irritation of the medial calcaneus?
0: I would suspect the tibial nerve.
1: What innervates muscles in the lateral leg compartment?
0: That would be the superficial fibular nerve, innervating the fibularis longus and brevis. I remember this by, it is very superficial to fib to long and brave
1: people. (laughs) Excellent mnemonic. An athlete rolls their foot and subsequently has midfoot pain and bruising on the plantar aspect. What ligament is likely injured?
0: That would be the Lisfranc ligament.
1: Last one here, what is a radiographic finding with weight-bearing if this ligament is torn?
0: There would be increased space between the first and second metatarsal on weight-bearing x-ray.
1: Dr. Farmer, you did a great job on that lightning round. Let's keep that momentum going through our final case. An NFL quarterback gets blindsided by a tight end in the middle of a play. He hits the ground and immediately grabs the ankle. He is unable to bear weight and is carted off the field. On exam, he is swollen around the ankle with bruising. There is tenderness to palpation over the lateral and medial aspects of the right ankle, as well as the lateral leg over the fibular head. Focus knee exam is benign. He has full sensation throughout the leg and foot, and is able to wiggle his toes and slightly plantar and dorsiflex the ankle. What are you thinking about on your differential?
0: It sounds like this athlete had a significant ankle injury. Inversion could damage the anterior talofibular ligament, the calcaneofibular ligament, and potentially the posterior talofibular ligament. Those are the anatomical correlations with grade 1, 2, and 3 ankle sprains. Eversion could damage the deltoid ligament complex. However, he could also have an ankle fracture. The proximal leg pain makes me think of a fibular head fracture.
1: Great list. What imaging do you want?
0: I would like an anterior-posterior, mortise view, and lateral view of the ankle. I would also want a full leg AP and lateral, as well as knee AP and lateral radiographs. You didn't mention tenderness around the foot, but I would like foot AP and lateral views as well to really evaluate for injury distal to the ankle.
1: All right, we can certainly obtain multiple views. What are you thinking that we'll find on imaging?
0: Given the mechanism of injury and tenderness to palpation on the fibular head, I'm suspicious of ankle and masonube fractures.
1: Tell us more. What is a masonube fracture?
0: Great question. So as long as we know the pelvis, hips, knees, ankles, and feet are all connected by the same kinetic chain starting at the feet. This fracture is a great example of that. The tibia and fibula are held together by an interosseous membrane. The impact on this athlete distally could have transmitted energy proximally through the membrane and out through the point of lowest resistance in the proximal fibula, causing a Mesa fracture. Mesa is classically described in association with ankle pronation, external rotation, or Weber class C ankle fractures.
1: What do you want to do?
0: This athlete will likely require surgical evaluation given the significance of his injuries and likely ankle instability. Given his high level of activity demands, he will likely need open reduction and internal fixation of the ankle, and possibly the proximal fibula for optimal anatomic alignment. However, proximal fibular open reduction is usually avoided because of proximity to the common fibular nerve.
1: How long will it take this quarterback to return to play?
0: Goals of rehab after ankle injury are restoration of motion, strength, and proprioception. An athlete can return to play once full painless range of motion and full strength is intact. Most patients return to full pre-injury levels of competition 6 to 10 weeks post-injury.
1: All right, Dr. Farmer, before we wrap up, can you give us your key takeaways for this episode?
0: Sure thing. Number one, excessive pronation while running can predispose athletes to medial tibial stress syndrome or tibial stress fractures. Number two, Differentiation of medial tibial stress syndrome and tibial stress fractures is important. Stress fractures classically have focal tenderness while medial tibial stress syndrome has diffuse tenderness. Imaging can help diagnose. If it is a stress fracture, the patient may need to be non-weight bearing until improved while patients with medial tibial stress syndrome might just need to cut back on mileage. Number three, chronic exertional compartment syndrome commonly presents with dull achy tightness after several minutes of exertion. Patients can have signs of peripheral nerve involvement, such as foot drop and numbness. The most commonly affected compartment is the anterior compartment of the leg. Compartment pressure greater than 25 millimeters of mercury or 10 millimeters of mercury above baseline with exertion are the key numbers to remember. Number four. Acute compartment syndrome should be suspected with the five Ps. Severe pain, pallor, paresthesias, pulselessness, and paralysis. Intervention is emergent. Number five. Speaking of anterior compartments, the muscles in the anterior compartment are the tibialis anterior, extensor hallucis longus, extensor digitorum longus, and fibularis tertius. These muscles are innervated by the deep fibular nerve. Number six, ankle injuries can be associated with damage of the tibiofibular interosseous membrane and a proximal fibular fracture. This is known as a mesa fracture.
1: All right, that's a great summary. Call it a wrap?
0: Yes, let's. Great talking with you, Ben.
1: We hope you enjoyed this board review episode on lower leg pathology. Thanks again to future physiatrist, Annie Wingard for assistance writing this episode and Dr. Benjamin Washburn and Dr. Carl Jockey for reviewing the content. If you thought this podcast was helpful, please share with others who may also value the content. Don't forget to follow the AAP on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay up to date on the latest news and opportunities.